I want to talk to you tonight about oneness, okay? A central verse in the Bible, central to the Hebrew faith, is Deuteronomy 6.4. It's called the Shema. It is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. It is the central thing that God gave them. They repeated it. They wrote on their doorpost. It was that God is one. Seems self-explanatory, but it's a big deal. Because God knew that his identity would always be in question at certain times in history. It's very unique in the context of the Israelites' history because all their neighboring nations, the pagans, they didn't have one God. They had multiple gods. See, the Israel faith is unique. It's called a monotheistic faith. Most other religions are polytheistic faiths. So when God said, I am one, it was not intuitive. It was counterintuitive. They were like, you're one? That's weird. There's only one of you? So when he says, like, I look around and there's no other Lord beside me, we're like, duh. But it's actually a, a revolutionary idea that God is God alone. The Egyptians had the God of the hills and the God of the valleys and the God of the Nile. So when God says, I'm by myself, I'm the God of everything, it's a very big deal. But the question of what does that mean, God being one, has been a question that has riddled through Christianity. What happened was the apostles taught that God was one. They taught Jesus' name baptism. They, they taught the infilling of the Holy Ghost as the evidence, with the evidence of speaking their tongues. And they raised a generation after them that believed it and taught it. But the third generation after them... They begin to lose the truth. They begin to question it. They begin to, weird ideas begin to, to, to grow up. People stopped believing that you had to be filled with the Holy Ghost with the evidence speaking in their tongues. They stopped believing in Jesus' name, baptism. So as their experience with God and their obedience to God began to shift, their ideas about who God was began to change, and some men got up. The Catholic Church is forming as you know it. Orthodoxy is forming. Incense burning. It's getting weird. And these guys at the Council of Nicaea decide they're going to define the nature of God in the New Testament. Because they're seeing words like the Holy Spirit and the Father and the Son. They're seeing these titles repeated. And they're like, you know what? We think that it, he's a trinity. That, that it's not one God and that it's just one person. We think that God, the word God, capital G, means more like a committee or this this, this unit of persons and that, that God is a trinity of three, here's the key, co-equal, co-eternal, separate persons. Separate persons. Now, co-equal meaning they are all just as powerful as each other. The Holy Spirit is not more powerful than the Father. The Father is not more powerful than the Son. They're all co-in power. We'll talk about that. Co-eternal meaning that not one existed before the other. They believe that the Son existed not after the Father may have created Him or begotten Him. The Son was always there in the beginning, floating in eternity, separate from the Father. He was not created by the Father. They believe that. That the Son is as powerful as the Father, and He's, he's eternal like the Father, and the Holy Spirit's the same. But it begins to get kind of confusing. So I want to get this in your brain, if you want to write it down. The Trinity is this, is that they believe that God is a Trinity, that each person of the Godhead is separate, co-equal, and co-eternal. They always existed, no one existed before the other, and they're equal in power. They're all as powerful as each other. If you can understand that, we can easily begin to reveal the oneness doctrine just by simply asking questions of the Trinity. So I'm going to ask some questions. I'm going to play a little devil's advocate with the Trinity. Okay? Let's take the first fact. If they're 
co-eternal separate persons of the Godhead. First question, why is the Father called the Father then? Because to be the Father, it means you pre-existed the Son, right? My Son is called my Son because I was there before Him and He came because of me. So there's this pre-existent and this cause to the title. The Father did something. It's, it's, a, it's a sign of, of reverence. 1 Corinthians 11 says that, that the Father, that Jesus is submitted to God because He's the Son. And it's like, wait a second. If Jesus always existed eternally, then why is the Father called the Father? They quote verses like this, that, that all things were made through him and by him. Nothing was made without Jesus. And like Jesus was there in the beginning. But John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus. But that word, word, in Greek means logos, mind, thought process, plan of God. It says it was God. His plan was there. His will was there. And he began to create through his will. And then he became flesh. Not a separate person, but the identity of God. He planned everything in the mindset of knowing that he would be Jesus one day for us. Here's how we know this. The Bible also says that the lamb, Jesus Christ, was slain. That he died on the cross at the foundation of the earth before the world was ever really made. But you know he didn't die then. He died later. So it's being allegorical. It's showing us that God saw, he planned on the fact that he would die for our sins the same way he created with Jesus. It's not two separate persons. It is that God saw it through the lens of becoming Jesus. If the Father is not pre-existing and they both existed forever together, why is he called the Father and he's called the Son? If they're co-equal in power, why are they called Father and Son? It gets even crazier. Whenever Mary is pregnant, the angel's telling her what's going on. She's like, I'm a virgin. I don't know what's going on. The angel said, the Holy Spirit has overshadowed you. The power of the Most High has come upon you, and you are having the Son of God, the Son of God. But the Holy Spirit has come upon you. I looked up every different denomination, and they all believe the same thing. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in the womb of Mary. The Holy Spirit did. Here's my question. I thought the one that conceives the baby is the Father. Is it not? If the Holy Spirit conceived baby Jesus, why is God the Father called the Father? It's confusing, right? Who's the dad? So all of a sudden, we got a son, a father and son that exists at the same time. One did not precede the other. But then the Holy Spirit's the daddy? I'm so confused. Matter of fact, what spirit was in Jesus? If Jesus was co-eternal, he's a spirit that always existed. He wasn't just a human that was born as the Spirit robed itself in flesh. Why couldn't Jesus just manifest himself? Why didn't he need the Holy Spirit to do it if he's co-equal and co-eternal? Why did the angel not say, Jesus is coming to conceive himself in you? Why does he need the Holy Spirit to conceive himself? It's weird. Matter of fact, Romans 8, 11 says that the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. It will resurrect you. Speaking of the Holy Ghost, what Spirit rose him from the dead? On the cross, his spirit left him. In the tomb, his spirit returned to him. It was the spirit of Jesus, right? He came back alive. But it's speaking about him being resurrected like unto when you get the Holy Ghost. But then in Acts 2, it says that the Holy Spirit filled them. Jesus said, I'm sending the comforter. Wait in the upper room. And in Acts, they were filled with the comforter. But then Jesus says, don't worry, I will come to you. Who's coming to fill me? Jesus or the Holy Spirit? I'm really confused. 
And what spirit's inside of Jesus? The Holy Spirit or the spirit of Jesus? It says the same spirit that's in him is going to be in me. What spirit is going on? It gets kind of confusing. All of a sudden, Jesus says that when Philip asked him, show us the Father. Jesus said, you've been with me a long time. You don't know? I and my Father are one. He that has seen me has seen the Father. For no one can come to the Father except through me. The words that I say and the works that I do are not of me, but of the Father that dwells within me. John chapter 14. Dwells what? Within me. Why is the Spirit of the Father inside of Jesus if he's a co-equal, co-eternal person of a Godhead that is separate? Why is it just not the Spirit of Jesus inside of him? Because Colossians says that the fullness of God's deity dwelt in Jesus bodily. That Jesus was the, the perfect imprint, Hebrews 1.3 says, of the person of God. Jesus was not a representation of a guy named Jesus that was a separate, co-equal part. It says that he was the perfect imprint, the expressed image of God. Colossians says the fullness. You'll see Godhead in your Bible. The Greek word means deity. The fullness of God's deity dwelt in Jesus bodily. We don't see separate people. What we're starting to see is that God robed himself in flesh. And the idea of father-son language is not saying separate people, but it is saying one existed before the other. Jesus, or God, said in Hebrews and in Psalms, Today I have begotten thee. You are my son in whom I'm well pleased. There was a time before Jesus existed. God conceived and formed Jesus, begotten him. That's why the Spirit's called the Father and the flesh is called the Son. But not to say like, Crew is my son and I'm his father. Two separate people. is to denote that one created the other. But he lives inside of that body forever. If he's co-equal, why does in John 8 Jesus say that I cannot do anything without the authority of the Father? In John 14, why does he say the words that I say and the works that I do are not of me, but of the Father that dwells within me? If Jesus has power on his own, he's equal to God, why is he saying that the Father is the one that gives him the power? And why is the Father in him? He shouldn't be in him. It should be Jesus' spirit. Ephesians 4 says, because there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one spirit, one God and Father of all that's above all, in all, saves people, in all. It's saying the Holy Ghost is the Father. It's saying Jesus is the expression of the full power of God. It's saying there's not three spirits, two spirits. It's saying that there is one spirit and he is manifest as Jesus. When he moves, he's called the Holy Spirit. When he governs, he's called the Father. And when he saves, intercedes for you and dies on a cross for you and rules on the throne of heaven forevermore, he is Jesus. Matthew 28, 19. Go ye and baptize them in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit. It does not say in the names. It says go baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One name. The apostles go and baptize them in Jesus' name. Acts 2, Peter said in Jesus' name. Philip and the Samaritans, Jesus' name. John, Paul with John's disciples, Jesus' name. Peter with the Gentiles, having heard them receive the Spirit with the evidence of speaking of their tongues, he said we must baptize them in the name of Jesus. Why? Because they were not co-equal, co-separate, co-eternal. He was, manifest, he was manifested. Think about it this way. Isaiah says, I, there is no other God beside me, no other Savior beside me. But then Isaiah also says in Isaiah 9, 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. 
a son, Jesus. His name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. Wait a second. Why is the son called the Father? Because he is the Father. Colossians goes on to say that he, uh, he uh, Second Corinthians rather, goes on to say in, in chapter 5 that he is the that the Son is the image of the invisible God. How much more plain can that be? The Son is the image of the invisible God. He is not a separate person that he conceived one time with a 16-year-old girl. He is not a separate person that came down and ascended. He is the image of the invisible God. He's not co-equal. He's not co-eternal. He was given. Daniel says, for I saw the ancient of days, God. Hair like wool, raiment of white, and he gave power to the Son of Man. Jesus called himself the Son of Man. He gave power to the Son of Man. But it's interesting, you, two, you see two separate people in this prophecy, the ancient days, Son of Man. There must be two separate people. Daniel is the book of Revelation for the Old Testament. Revelations is the book of Revelation for the New Testament. See what it did there? When John sees a vision of... Of God, he sees the Ancient of Days. The same way Daniel describes him. Same hair, same garment. And he goes, he's like, that's the Ancient of Days, that's God. And then God says, I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the beginning and the end. It's God. He's walking around the candlestick. He's talking to the angels of the church. It's God. But then he says, I am the one that died and rose again. I am the lamb that was slain. I am Jesus. Wait a second. The image in Daniel of the Son of Man and the image of the Ancient of Days, John sees them put together. Because prophecy, when you see two separate people, is not to say they're two separate persons. It's to show you the two natures of God when he became a man named Jesus. It's to show you how they conversate the two natures of God worked together. For instance, to help you understand this, you have two natures inside of you. When you get the Holy Ghost, it helps you overcome. It helps your flesh was made in beauty, made without sin, made to be an image of God. Spiritual beings, physical beings. God did not make Adam and Eve as clouds, and then when they sinned, he said, now you're physical. Your body is meant to be a, a wonderful expression of God's power in his image. Okay? But your body has sin that wants to plague it. The flesh is weak because of sin. John said, my body feels like a, my, my humanity feels like a separate part. There's a sickness inside of it, though, that, that is leading it and guiding it. Sin. But when I got the Holy Ghost... God empowered my spirit to tell my, my flesh we're going to do right. He helped me overcome it. Paul says in Galatians 5, now I walk at the spirit and I can overcome the weakness in my flesh. There's two sides of you. Fighting, communing. And when you get the Holy Ghost, God begins to help redeem the human side to have dreams and move and worship and be a holy, acceptable sacrifice unto God. He makes you in the image of Christ. Ephesians 4 says, grow into the image of the full stature of Jesus. There's two sides of you as you're in the image of Christ. You ever wonder when it said that God made man in his image in the beginning? That God was invisible. One away, gave us a soul, gave us eternal being, gave us dreams. But also, it said that all things were made through Jesus. Did it not? With the plan of Jesus? One day, God became a man like us to die for our sins, to make us into the image of, of resurrected and redeemed humanity. Now we have a, a God, not a man with God inside of him. For he said, I am in the Father, in the Father in me. Not just the Father in me. We have God as a man. It says that he's meant to be, and I quote, the firstborn of many brethren 
our kinship redeemer, meaning that what Jesus did, we can have too. He was humanity empowered by God's divinity so that when he died for you and filled you with his spirit and covered you with his blood by baptism in Jesus' name, you can be made in his image. What is the image? Spirit and humanity, but victorious. So when Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is not talking to a separate person. He's talking to his spirit. His humanity and his spirit are communing. I don't want the cross, but not my will, but thy will. Sweating tears like of blood. But we know what he's going through because he tells us. Three times he prays this prayer. He goes and checks on the disciples every time and they're sleeping. He says, watch ye and pray lest you fall into temptation. But then he says, you got to read multiple gospels. The gospels have different accounts of the same story. Then he says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He says this. Why? Because he's going through this. Whose spirit is willing? His spirit. Whose flesh is weak? His flesh. When Jesus had that prayer meeting, he was showing you how redeemed humanity can get through problems and struggles. But it's not showing you two separate persons of the Godhead communing. It's showing you the two sides. When God manifested himself as a human, he gave himself two natures like us, but to be free unlike us so we could be made in his image. So anytime you see in Revelation, they split again. We see Jesus as an actual lamb with like 10 horns. And the Ancient of Days is glowing on the, on the throne again. People are like, see, they're literally separate. Jesus does not literally look like a lamb with 10 horns. It's allegorical. Anytime they split, it's to show you how they work together, not to say they're separate. Okay? We're cooking with oil now. God is trying to show us how he communes with his own self. Let us reason together. He, he counsels with his own wisdom. God has shown he fulfilled not different persons, but different roles for us. The Bible would be confusing if every time he gave himself a name, we'd say, that's a different person. Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi. Like, it's showing different things he does for us, not that there are different parts of him, different persons in him. That'd be confusing. Son of Abraham, it calls him. The, the Rose of Sharon. We, we'd have so many things going on. It should show nature, two natures within him, and then roles he does in our lives. For instance, why did God have to have two natures? Well, it was prophesied. Emmanuel, God with us. Not just God present, God like us. So as soon as he wrote himself humanity, he became fully human. Now listen to me very, very carefully. God never stopped being human. He did not leave the body in the grave. He came back for the body. He never stops being Jesus. Jesus was not a man that he used. Jesus is God manifest. It's not just God in a body. It is God incarnate forever. He told David, the king in the Old Testament, and his son Solomon, he said that your descendant will sit on my throne forever. That throne is gone. But when Jesus picked Mary, she was a descendant of David. And so he picked her to be the one that he conceived his body through. Jesus became a physical descendant. And it says that Jesus sits on the throne of heaven forever. That all power under heaven and earth is given to that name. He's fulfilling the promise right then. He tells Solomon, Solomon builds him a physical house or a real temple. He says, my name shall be upon this house forever. That house was destroyed. People sinned in that house. He was speaking prophetically of another house that Solomon would build for him. Solomon's great-great-grandkids became the grandparents. And thus, one day, Mary is now going to be the one that can give God flesh. Jesus stands before the temple, that same temple, and he tells the Pharisees, 
destroyed this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They freaked out. They thought he was a terrorist. He was talking about when he goes to the grave for three days. You destroyed this temple, but in three days. Solomon, you're going to make me a temple and my name will be upon it forever. When Jesus went, when he ascended unto heaven, God did not take a zipper and unzip Jesus and say, I'm done. He sits on the throne forever. He's embodied the same way you'll have a new glorified body, the same way you'll have a robe. Humans go to heaven, redeemed humans. God never stopped being the man, Jesus. I know that sounds self-explanatory, but I'm telling you what, I get fired up. Well, you know, I, the flat, redeemed humanity and glory, I get all that, okay? But heaven's not a vaporous place, and God did not fleece Jesus. He stayed Jesus. I'll get off my soapbox. We're going to get off of it. Why does this matter? Because Colossians says that by one man, sin entered into all flesh, Adam. By another man, sin, uh, salvation can be extended to all men that receive him. So he had to become in our likeness to die in our place. So God's law said that we owe him a debt. You sin, you must die. God, the Father, is the creditor. He cannot break his own rules. Grace, this is a, pet, this is a different sermon. I'm going to be careful. Grace is not God breaking his rules right and wrong. It's him paying for it. Come on, somebody. He paid himself. He didn't say, let's just break the rules. That's why when we repent, we must be, have a contrite spirit. It's of a high cost. So what he did was... He looked at man and said, you can't pay the debt, and no one can. Paul said a thousand animals dying could not pay the debt. So he made a plan. He began to hint at this plan throughout the Old Testament. He said, if you kill a physical animal because you sinned, it will bring momentary penance, but it won't get rid of it, and I won't forget about it. It'll push it off. Spotless lambs. In, Ex in Exodus, the last plague, the death angel, the death angel was going to kill the firstborn of every home, firstborn male child. The plan was, though, God said, kill a spotless lamb, take its blood, put it on the top doorpost and the two side doorposts, and your house would be redeemed. Okay? When a male firstborn child was born, God said, I don't want to kill them. I don't like child sacrifice. He said, redeem it with a lamb. You can kill something in its place to save it. Anytime a firstborn animal was born, you could kill it if it was pleasing. If it was unpleasing, you would redeem it. Substitution. But the word redeem is important. Okay? He knew that no one could die because we're, we're sinful. So he said, you know what? I'll rub myself in flesh. I will be of higher value be, uh, than you because I am God incarnate. And also I will be sinless, something you cannot achieve. John called Jesus the spotless lamb. Notice the imagery. Spotless lamb dies in your place. It's called redemption. He said, I can be the spotless lamb, die in your place, so you can be what? Redeemed, the Bible says. Everything's snapping together. Why did he have to do this? Imagine you know a guy that owns a Walmart, big store. You don't even see him, but you know he's there. You sense his presence. He's rich. He owns everything. There's something in his store that you want, but you can't afford it. You never could afford it. So what does he do? He gives you a gift card. Or a coupon. Or if you're weird, a coupon. People say coupons. And they may go to hell for it. It's pretty rough. What do you have to do? Well, you didn't earn that money. It was freely given to you, right? Thank you so much. But you just can't just leave it and it works for you. You have to activate it. You ever read the activate your card online? You have to scratch. You ever wait until you got to the cash register and the lady's like, oh my God, give me a penny. And she scratches the back off of the code. There are steps you must take to activate the thing that's going to give you value. Peter said, repent and be baptized. See what I'm doing there? Everyone in the name of Jesus Christ, mission of sins. 
Grace is freely given, but it's obediently received. Come on, somebody. He gives you this thing. He owns the stuff, but you can't pay for it. So he, he buys it for you and gives you the card. What is it called when you go to the cash register and you use the card? It is called redemption. It's called redemption because Walmart ripped off God. That word in our English language is taken from biblical concepts, y'all. They had the word first. We didn't. God showed us that this is what redemption looks like. The altar is the cashier. And God the Father is the one that is owed, that owns everything. But he became a man, not a separate person. He, he did two things at once. He became the creditor and the debtor. And he paid for our sins, but only if we obediently receive him. When you understand salvation, you have a better understanding of what oneness is. Same God, two natures. Same God, he played both roles. He paid himself back. To not to be disrespectful to Jesus, he is the gift card. The man that gave you the gift card is the one that bought it for you. That is understanding of oneness. Okay, bonus round. I was going to split this in two lessons, but we're here. Right? We're here. Let's go and knock it out. For instance, KJV, this is Romans 1, verse 7, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and, everybody say and, Amen. peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You read this, you go, oh, they're separate people. Oh my God, Merit's lying to me. The Bible was originally written in Hebrew, the Old Testament, Aramaic, and Greek, the New Testament. Your Bible comes from Greek. All the apostles quoted the Greek scriptures, not the Hebrews. They read the Greek translation of the Hebrew, of, of the text. So they quoted Greek Old Testament. They quote it, it's Greek. When you look this up, look it up in Strong's online or whatever, you can look up the meaning of the word and. It is kai. Probably butchering the pronunciation. You can spell it in English K-A-I. But it's pronounced kai. I saw the pronunciation marks. I learned it. It means, shocker, and. It also can mean even. So the verse could say, grace, uh, grace to you, and peace from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Kai, Kai. So it could mean our Father, even the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, that shifts it a little bit. But there's a key universally accepted rule in translating Scripture. Everybody agrees with this. It's not like a Pentecostal. We just snuck in something. It's called Gransville Sharp's Rule. Okay? Here's the rule. Looking at a Greek text, if and, if Kai is present... Okay, in the scripture. And it's connecting two nouns. I, don't, I hope we don't have to go back to English class too much. You know what a noun is? Person, place, thing. <laughs> Father and Jesus. If it's connecting two nouns of the same case, the same gender, and the same um, number. If Kai is connecting those two and the word the is not present, the sentence is saying these two nouns are the same. But merit the word thus present. Actually, when you look at it in Greek, it's not there. This verse, literally translated, is from God our Father, Jesus Christ. He's not trying to show two different people. He's trying to show the one that holds us and the one that died for us. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Bonus round, here we go. You ever heard it said, um, Jesus sits at the right hand of the Father? Stephen looked up and saw that, that Jesus was sitting at the right hand of God. Okay. David said that the Lord was always before him, Psalm 16, because the Lord is at my right hand. 
David, the Lord is at your right hand? Yeah. But I thought you're supposed to be at the right hand of God. He's at my right hand. That puts you at God's left hand. You start saying it's not literal. The expression of being at the right hand. You know, in some cultures, you say at their left hand, they'll cut your throat. The right hand is respect. The right hand is authority. It's an imagery of, of power and in, 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 in victory. Verse 10, we see that he's actually prophesying about Jesus. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. Jesus is saying, the Lord God, the Father, is at my right hand. But I thought Stephen said he was at the right hand of God the Father. I'm so confused. Psalms 110 says that Jesus is at the right hand of God. Romans 8.34, 1 Peter 3.22, Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. All of a sudden, Luke 22.69, the Son of Man shall be seated from now on at the right hand of the power of God. But at the power of God, not at the throne. It says throne, no, it says power. It's supposed to be the same thing. Not a physical location, but a place of ability, of power, of exaltation. For instance, Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers a saved person will sit with me on my throne, Jesus is speaking. You're going to sit on the throne with Jesus. There's going to be a lot of saved people. Is that a big throne? Is it a, is it a love seat? Is it a couch? We're all going to sit on the same throne? You know he's not talking about a physical seat. It's meaning authority, respect, honor. He even says, as I also sit on the throne with my father. Wait, on the same throne in his lap? Is there a kitty throne and a bigger throne? It's the same throne. He's, he's talking about how can he sit in the same, same seat the father sitting in? Because I and my father are one. The son is the Image of the invisible God, the Bible says. So when you see the right hand of God over and over and over again, it's not saying a physical location. It's meaning power and authority. Exalted, given permission. This goes back to he's not co-equal for all power was given to that name. The Father gave it to his manifestation. He gave it to him when he begot, when he was formed, when he was created. Once again, the Trinity is three separate, co-eternal, co-equal people. It's not in the Bible. Here is your Lord our God is one Lord. For the fullness of the Godhead dwells within him bodily. Why don't you stand with me?